Well, we're in Psalm 69 tonight, uh, a Messianic Lament Psalm is what I've titled uh, the message here. Uh, actually, Psalm 69 has a number of uh, descriptions. Uh, it's called a Lament Psalm, an imprecatory psalm, as well as a Messianic psalm. It really has uh, elements of all three in it. <clears throat> After Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and then Psalm 22... We then have Psalm 69. So it is, uh, you know, a psalm that's referenced a lot. Uh, Tonight we want to focus on the fact that it is a messianic psalm. A Moody Bible commentary says Psalm 69 is among those psalms more frequently referenced in the New Testament. Directly five instances and indirectly at least seven more with application to the Messiah and his circumstances. Well, let's pick it up. Psalm 69 at the top, the, uh, the subscription up there uh, says this, uh, To the uh, chief musician, set to the lilies a psalm of David. Now, what does this uh, phrase mean when it says uh, set to the lilies? Uh, it's uncertain what it means, actually. Uh, some think it may refer to the, the general beauty of the composition, as lilies are beautiful. <laughs> Others to a particular tune of the time, something that has reference to a six-stringed instrument known as So uh, Show uh, Shannon. Show Shannon, which is a literal translation of the Hebrew. In fact, the New American Standard has this uh, at the beginning of the psalm and translates this uh, for the choir director according to Show Shannon. So uh, we don't really know what it means for sure. That's what all that means. Well, whatever the case... (coughs) We uh, know that this is once again a psalm of David. David wrote at least half the psalms, and many of them were messianic in nature. In order to be called a messianic psalm, it has to have a direct tie with with the New Testament in some fashion or or another. In other words, a messianic psalm is always a prophetic psalm involving certain prophecies about the Messiah that are then shown to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus himself is shown in the Bible to be the main centerpiece of the grand subject of prophecy. And after his resurrection, Jesus expounded to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And it says in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 40, uh, 27, Luke 24, 27. And then in Revelation 19, 10, it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the centerpiece in prophecy is Jesus. The Messianic Psalms were generally written about a thousand years before the time of Christ. David lived about a thousand years before the time of Christ. And as we think about uh, these Messianic prophecies, there's really two main themes that they tie in with. And that would be uh, suffering related to Messiah's first advent, and then glory related to his second advent. In fact, Christ broke it down this way on the road to Emmaus where he said, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What did the prophets in all of their writings really uh, focus on? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So a suffering theme and a glory theme. Uh, those are the two broad themes related to the Messiah. Now, David, appropriately, is the most prolific writer of Messianic Psalms. Because the Messiah is, in fact, the son of David, meaning in terms of his humanity, he is a descendant uh, through the line of David. 
David in Psalm 69 is, is writing about his own circumstances. And yet he is writing as a prophet. We know he was a prophet because that's what Acts 2.30 says. Now in his writings, the Holy Spirit made prophetic application to refer to the coming greater David, the Messiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Messianic Psalms, it is common to have a mix a mix of prophetic references to Jesus along with other references that are about the psalmist's own life and experience. So what we have here in Psalm 69 is David writing about his own life and experiences and the Spirit then taking David's experience and making prophetic application uh, to some of it. Uh, not all of it, but with some of it, uh, applying it to the life and experience of the Messiah. Let me give you just a general outline here of Psalm 69. David's desperation and persecution, verses 1 through 12. David's prayer for God's intervention and retribution, 13 through 28. And then David's declaration of praise, 29 through the, through the end of the chapter. So let's work our way through the psalm now, highlighting the messianic emphases found in it. Pick it up, verse 1. Save me, O God, from, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me, those who hate me without a cause, are more than the hairs of my head. That's a lot of them. They are mighty who would destroy me. Not only are they haters, but they're mighty haters. Uh, being my enemies wrongfully. I mean, he says, though I have stolen nothing, I must still restore it. This is a psalm of desperation. David's life, it would seem, is in jeopardy. There's some really powerful players on the scene who have come against him. And he says there are many who hate him for no valid reason, which is shown to be prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we read in the New Testament, jump forward to the New Testament in John chapter 15, Jesus says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And we read about this in, uh, in the earlier psalm here, uh, as, we, as we see in Psalm uh, 35. But we also noted here in Psalm 69, they hated me without a cause. Now, it's one thing to be hated for something you have done, right? <laughs> but to be hated without a cause is really hard. Uh, Jesus did nothing but good to these people. I mean, he never abused them. He never did them wrong in any way. Jesus was, sarcastically, guilty of doing miraculous things that no one else had ever done. Is that reason to hate him? Well, of course not. It's full frontal evidence that he is the Messiah. And yet they hated him for no legitimate reason at all. Bruce Scott, writing in an article about the Jews, says, Why do some people hate the Jews? Many don't have a reason. They simply hate the Jews for being Jews. As the psalmist wrote, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. You know, that's, that's very much devil-like. You know, they say returning good for good is man-like. Returning evil for good is devil-like. 
and returning good for evil is godlike. This hating without a cause is really devil-like. I mean, it's evil. Explains anti-Semitism often. And it explains why the world hated Jesus. Say, well, what, what reasons did they have? Well, you could talk all kinds of things. They were jealous. They were envious. They, they had their power control over the temple. The leaders did all these things. But really, they had no real legitimate reason. It is really a spiritual thing with the devil behind it. Sin often makes no sense. But what makes no sense logically makes perfect spiritual sense in the devil's way of operation. Verse 5, O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. This is interesting. He says, they hated me without cause. And then he comes right back and says, O God, you know my foolishness. My sins are not hidden from you. So David is not claiming that he is without sin, but he is insisting that he is not guilty of what his enemies are charging him with. Have you ever been in a situation where, where someone is holding something over you, and as far as you can tell, you are not guilty of what they are claiming, yet you realize that you too are not, a, uh, not perfect, and you too are a sinner, you know, that's always the case, right? Somebody could say, well, well, you too are a sinner. Well, yeah, yeah, pretty much always. <laughs> At any given point, that's true for all of us. I mean, we're saints, that's our, our identity. But uh, we're, uh, we're saints who sin once in a while. We all stumble in many ways. None of us are perfect. And we won't be until we get to glory. So there's always some flaw that could be pointed out. And I think this is David's situation. He's saying they're hating me uh, without a cause. There's no legitimate grounds, yet he's admitting, yeah, well, I, I am foolish sometimes. I, I, am, I, too, am sinful. So he acknowledged that God knew all about his sins, and yet at the same time, the hatred being vented against him was without a cause. Now, if you're going through something like this, just realize this is right out of the devil's playbook, and you are not the first to go through it. Even Jesus was hated without a cause. And because he has gone through it, he can now sympathize with what we go through. And he gives grace to help in time of need to all those who come to the throne of grace, as it says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. Verse 6, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Notice how David is now praying. He is praying that he would in no way be responsible for God's people being disgraced because of him. This is a great prayer, by the way. Uh, God help me to not be a part of the problem. Uh, note the repeated refrain, because of me. Not, let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. And he says it again, let not those who seek you be confounded because of me. David doesn't want to be part of the problem. You know, being a, a cause of uh, disgrace for God's people. It's good to pray about, you know, our own selves. Uh, D.L. Moody said, I've had more trouble with myself than any other man. I think we could probably all say that, right? David is saying, I don't want to be the problem. I don't want to be the, the cause. Verse 7, because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. Why? Why is he in trouble right now? Well, he says, it's because for your sake I have borne reproach. 
Now, we don't know what the circumstances were here exactly, but David here indicates that he's in trouble with these people because of a stand that he has taken for God. It was not well received, and he has been scorned and shamed because of it. Really, this is the definition of persecution. It's one thing to suffer because of your own stupidity. It's another thing to suffer because you're taking a stand for God. And because of it, David has become ostracized and shunned. Shame has covered my face. Uh, he, has, he says, I've borne reproach. And verse 8 continues, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's children. Family doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And this too is the experience of Christ. As even his own brothers at one point did not believe in him. We read about this in John 7, 5. Even his brothers did not believe in him. Verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. There's actually two points being made here uh, with messianic connections. The first has to do with when Christ cleansed the temple early in his ministry. John quotes this verse uh, because it was really holy fire, zeal in his soul that caused him to respond the way he did at the temple. And we read about it here in John chapter 2, 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. They went back to Psalm 69. It seems to me they knew their Bible pretty well to be able to, to ferret that out of Psalm 69. And they did. They remembered. This is a direct quote, a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. The word zeal is often used in the sense of jealousy. You know, there's a holy jealousy. God is a jealous God who demands that what is rightfully His be given to Him, worship. Uh, the idea of zeal carries with it the idea of passion or burning emotion. So it's the idea of red-hot passion. Jesus had a jealous passion for God's temple. God is a jealous God when it comes to worship, and this, is, and this boiled up to a red-hot zeal in, in the heart of Christ. And the result was truly righteous indignation. Uh, my friend Jim Baker made this application via a, a meme sure on all kinds of application, but you see what he's doing here? <laughs> and uh, here we are, modern day application, what's going on. Uh, uh, God is within, you know. Uh, who are you? Uh, all, all love is God's love, you know, these kind of messages. And here's Jesus saying, what, what are you doing uh, in, in relationship uh, to my turf, in effect? Well, that's always a good question. Uh, the temple of God today is the people of God. And what does Jesus think about what's really happening in reference to his temple, uh, the, the people of God? Well, the second part of Psalm 69, verse 9 says, And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. A reproach is an insult. And insults really directed are at God are now directed at, at him. And this, too, is specifically quoted in reference to Christ in Romans chapter 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches, the reproaches of those who reproached you, speaking of God, fell on me. 
So insults really directed at God were directed at him. As they say, sometimes you take one for the team. And sometimes you haven't done anything. And yet it is within the will of God for you to suffer reproach for his namesake. Christ's enemies really hated God. And they took it out on him. Of course, Christ himself is God. But he was, uh, in his humanity, the perfect representation of God. This, too, is the devil's way. And don't be surprised when it happens to you. The reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. That was Christ's experience. Verse 10 continues. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Kind of interesting to know what the occasion was here. But the whole of society is having a problem with David at this point. When David earnestly sought the Lord with fasting, they made fun of him. Oh, look at David in his distress. He's all dressed up in sackcloth, seeking the Lord. Poor guy. At the city entrance, the, you know, the city entrance is where the, uh, the movers and shakers of the city would gather. I mean, the lawyers would be there, and the city council would be there, and this is where the, the movers and shakers of the city would, would gather. And they're mocking him. And so are the drunkards. He's the song of the drunkards. So really, the whole of society has no respect for David at this point. Reminds me of Isaiah 53.3, which also prophetically is speaking of Jesus. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. People can be so cruel. Depravity is ugly, and it's nothing new. Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you. How did David respond? He responded with prayer. My prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. So here David is pleading with God's intervention. For God's help from those who hate him. Those who are his enemies, who want to destroy him. Verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, and there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. It's a very humiliating time for David. He experienced deep reproach, that is scorn, shame, and dishonor. He was put down about as far as you can imagine. His dignity was completely destroyed in terms of public opinion. And yet David says, God knows all about it. He knows all about David's adversaries. Somehow just knowing God knows is comforting and strengthening. And yet David says this reproach has broken his heart and he is full of heaviness. He looked for someone to have sympathy, but he found no one. Note that double emphasis here. No one to take pity. No one to provide comfort. That's tough. 
That's tough. When you have to go through uh, dealing with haters, and they're more than you can count on the, as far as the, you know, it's easier to count on my head anymore, but if, if you get a full head of hair, and, and they're as many as the hair on your head, uh, you got all of this against you, all by yourself. That's tough. No one to comfort him. No one to take pity. That's challenging. Now, praise the Lord, we have the Lord, and Christ is sufficient, and yet it's amazing how God has made us where we, we, need, we need people around us. God has ordained that. And when there's no one, that is a really tough challenge. That's where David was. Didn't have anybody. No one is there for him to pity. No one to comfort him. We're, we are reminded here that the cross was a lonely place. It was so lonely that even Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are few things harder than enduring the hatred of people who hate you wrongfully and being all alone in that experience. But Christ has been there in a way that we will never comprehend. As our great high priest, he can sympathize with whatever we are going through. Verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, this verse is directly applied to Jesus' experience on the cross. We read in Matthew 27, 34, They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. When he had tasted it, he would not drink. And then again in verse 48, Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. And then again in John chapter 19, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. William MacDonald says, Gall was a bitter and perhaps poisonous substance, which in small quantity might have acted as a sedative. The vinegar was a sour wine. So the word gall means bitter. And vinegar means sour wine. Gall really is proverbial for bitterness. Metaphorically, David was saying those who hated him served him up bitterness to drink, which was then literally fulfilled in the experience of Christ. Well, we now come to the imprecatory part of David's prayer. Imprecatory prayers sound really harsh. You know why? They are. Uh, imprecatory prayers invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies. You are really kind of praying they get run over by a big truck. (laughs) It's pretty graphic. I mean, you'll see what I mean when we work through this. And sometimes we kind of grapple with how do we explain it? Well, in graphic language, imprecatory prayers are asking God to deal with these wicked people in very severe ways. Now, I think imprecatory prayers assume that these people are steeled in their sin and they will not repent. But David also knew that God teaches sinners in the way, Psalm 25, 8. In his own restoration, David said, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. And again, in Psalm 7... God is a just God, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If, if, key, if he does not turn back, that is, if he doesn't repent, if he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword 
talking about judgment here, he bends his bow and makes it ready. God's going to bring him down. So taken in total, I think David wanted his wicked enemies to repent. But by all appearances, they have steeled themselves in rebellion and imprecatory prayers are based, it seems to me, on that seeming reality. It assumes they won't repent and therefore David prays accordingly. But again, he is praying for God to deal with these people and, and not just in the flesh seeking for vengeance. Verse 22, notice what he says. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Now in the New Testament, Paul quoted from Psalm 69, 22 and 23 in Romans chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. And he did so in reference to the rebel Jews. Godquestions.org says, since Jesus and Paul quoted verses from these imprecatory psalms, it proves that those psalms were inspired by God and counters any allegation that they were sinful or selfish prayers of revenge. Notice he continues, verse 24, pour out your indignation on them. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, please be merciful to these wicked people. He said, pour out your indignation on them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. This is so strong that it is quoted in the New Testament in reference to who? Well, Judas. It's quoted in reference to Judas. It is written in the book of Psalms right here. Psalm 69. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. Let another take his office. Pretty strong language. Verse 26 For they persecute the ones you have struck. Isn't that interesting? They persecute the ones you have struck. Remember David talked about his foolishness, his sinfulness. Seems to me maybe he was under some discipline at this point in his life. And they're persecuting him. Okay, God's disciplining him, but they're persecuting him. There's a difference there. And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. So the wicked persecute those whom God disciplines. They pile on in the flesh instead of just letting God deal with it. Verse 27, add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Boy, that is really strong, imprecatory praying. I can't think of a situation where I would actually pray this prayer. I don't know that I could ever say it's right for somebody to pray this prayer, but... Who am I to take issue with David here? I just don't know what, quite what to make of it always. Uh, Moody Bible Commentary says, It is important to understand, however, that the reference to being blotted out of the book of life does not mean that one can lose his salvation. Rather, as indicated by the parallelism in the second line of the verse, the petition, May they not be recorded with the righteous, is intended to emphasize that such individuals were never recorded in the book of life with the righteous in the first place. Let's talk about this for just a moment. Uh, The Bible talks much about the book of life and the names that are written there. And in the end, you know, the books are going to be opened. and, And if your name's not written in the book of life, you're going into the lake of fire. Revelation 17, 8 speaks of, of the lost, quote, whose names are not written in the book of life 
from the foundation of the world. Considering the whole counsel of God, it seems that the names of believers in the sovereignty of God, who knows everything before it even happens, uh, the names of believers in the sovereignty of God, it seems, have always been in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And unbelievers' names have never been in the book of life, also from the foundation of the world. There is no clear scripture that says God adds or removes a name afterward. Now, sometimes in places such as Exodus 32, 33, which speaks of God blotting a person out, uh, the context would seem to be God blotting them out of the book of the living in the sense of removing them from this life physically because of their sin. The promise in Revelation 3, 5 is that God will not blot out the name of overcomers, and that is a statement of assurance. As I, Again, God sovereignly knows from eternity <clears throat> who will be saved, <clears throat> and he knows their names are safely written in his book of life. However, the only way that a person can know if their name is in the book of life is if they put their faith in Christ. God knows all from the beginning, but we don't. It's kind of like that old illustration where over, over the door uh, is whosoever will can come. And so, okay, we come and we step through the door and we look back and it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. There's a mystery there. But Christ said to his disciples, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is the main thing. One commentator pointed out that consistently when the Bible talks about the books being opened, it is in conjunction with judgment, so as to prove the person's name is not there. It's damning evidence on judgment day. Your name's not here. Well, David now anticipates God lifting him up, and his emphasis now turns to praise for what God will do in answer to prayer. Verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. David now uh, broadens his worship emphasis that calls on the entire universe to praise God and anticipates God's glorious restoration in the kingdom. Notice verse 34 continues. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Well, let's wrap this up and make some uh, application here. The Bible is an amazing book. And once we see how God put it together, it is fascinating beyond measure. Let me explain what I mean and make some application. The book of Revelation is a book which presents Old Testament prophetic events. With over 500 references, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has chronicled those 500, over 500 references, the founding of the book of Revelation, that tie back to Old Testament prophecies. So 
the book of Revelation presents Old Testament prophetic events with over 500 references in a sequential order. As these prophetic events are scattered throughout the Old Testament, it would be impossible for anyone to put these prophecies into any chronological order. I mean, it's over here, it's over here, it's over here, it's over here. You can't make sense of it. What the book of Revelation does is place these events in a chronological sequential order as seen in Revelation 6 through 20. Interspersed with these prophetic events are scenes taking place in heaven. The first three chapters present the church age truth not dealt with in the Old Testament. And the last two chapters present new revelation related to the eternal state. But once you see the big picture as put together by God, and by the way, we only see the picture when God puts it together for us. We never figure it out on our own. But once we see the big picture as put together by God, it is evident that only an all-knowing God who sovereignly controls history could put this all together in one coherent story. And so it is with the life of Christ. We have all kinds of snapshots in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, in the Messianic Psalms. But until we have the New Testament revelation, you really could not put it together, not in a coherent story. But now that we have the whole story, we see it all fits together perfectly. In Psalm 69, we see various snapshots of the Messiah that the New Testament then makes clear are fulfilled in Christ, and it all fits perfectly. Note what we have seen tonight. Psalm 69, a messianic psalm. Christ to be hated without cause. And that was true. It was fulfilled in the experience of Christ. Christ's zeal for God's house. Fulfilled perfectly. Christ to be given gall and vinegar. Fulfilled perfectly. It all jives when you see the story. And it's put together uh, as we see in the New Testament. There is no other prophetic book like the Bible. Scores of specific prophecies, such as those made 1,000 years in advance, are all dovetailed in fulfillment in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord for His Word and praise Him for our wonderful Savior. Indeed, let us say with David in Psalm 6930, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's close with a song. Let's stand, have our closing song.